the other, the other uh, announcement is there are office hours today. So if you want to come to office hours, it's going to be in uh, LSB, first floor LSB, same as always, 1030 to 1130. And we will arrange an exam viewing at some point. It'll probably take a whole day, one day, and just sit in a room. And if you want to come look at, your, look at the exam and, and look how you answered on it, you can do that uh, sometime next week. Okay, so this is where we got to last class. We were talking about different types of RNA. So the, we talked about this concept that RNA, because of the 2 prime hydroxyl group, is more flexible than DNA. And so um, the other thing to bear in mind is that, and, and this is, if you're not already aware of this, this will become obvious over the next few lectures. When D, RNA is synthesized, you only make one strand, right? Whereas when DNA is doing uh, replication, you make both strands. So DNA in the nucleus is, exists as a double-stranded molecule. RNA is single-stranded. And so naturally, because RNA is single-stranded, it has a natural propendency. If it's going to be able to base pair with something, it's often with itself. And so it's going to fold up on itself. And that's an example of that is like we talked about with this, this tRNA. So we call this, so the, there's a kind of a nomenclature for structure for nucleic acids, similar to what we talked to with proteins. Uh, the primary sequence of an RNA will be the same as the primary sequence of a protein. It will just be the sequence, right? So C, G, A, U, C, C, etc. This is what we would call the secondary structure, kind of similar in concept to the second series of a protein. It shows you some kind of two-dimensional look of kind of what it looks like. You might look at a protein, it might tell you which part of it's alpha helical or beta sheet, but it doesn't really tell you the 3D structure. We call this kind of view the secondary structure of an RNA. And the idea of that is it's showing you which bits are base paired with other bits. Often we can predict this using a computer, but famously the computers are often wrong. Uh, you basically, there's a program, you can go online if you're bored. You go to a website called mfold and you put in any sequence you want and it will try to fold it into a shape for you based on what it predicts is the lowest predicted free energy for making all these Watson-Crick base pairs. And then you get, it'll spit out loops and single-stranded regions, et cetera, et cetera. Famously, it's often wrong. So you don't really necessarily know what an RNA looks like unless you have an actual structure for it. And then, um, and we'll talk more about kind of the structure of what a tRNA is uh, in a few more lectures. We'll talk about things like anticodon loops and amino acid arms, that type of thing. But one last thing I want to talk about is this idea of, of tertiary structure. So this would be more the tertiary structure of the tRNA. The tRNA doesn't, exact, doesn't exist like this, just like a flat piece of paper. It actually folds up into a three-dimensional shape. Uh, the space-filling view looks like this, and I talked about this in the last class. It takes kind of the shape of an L or an elbow. Um, so another class of RNA that is non-coding, that has structure, uh, this is the ribosomal RNAs. So the ribosomal RNA is the most highly expressed type of RNA that you have in the cell, right? Um, it's estimated that 85% of the RNA a cell makes is ribosomal RNA. So if you were to think that which of the bits that, uh, you know, if you were to just look at the cell and say, well, what's the most important bit? You'd presume it's the ribosomal RNA based on its abundance. And it is very important, but a lot of the work we do isn't about the ribosomal RNA when we're studying what's happening in cells because the ribosomal RNA is kind of just always there doing its ribosomal RNA job. Uh, what is often more interesting looking What's happening in a cell is what messenger RNAs are being made, and that will feed into what proteins are being made. So this is just an idea to give you kind of an idea, of, again, of, of um, and we'll talk about this again when we get to the lecture on translation, 
secondary structure of RNA. So this is the kind of the, the this view of the ribosomal RNA. The ribosomal RNAs are much bigger, so we can't zoom in quite so much. We have to kind of zoom out a little bit. But you can still see things like uh, double-stranded regions of RNA, loops, bulges. And this is an attempt to kind of show you the conservation of the ribosomal RNA across the kingdoms, right? You have the bacteria, the archaea, and the eukaryotes. And the thing to take away from this is, in green, is the stuff that's conserved between the three kingdoms. And you're supposed to take away from this that the ribosomal RNA is highly conserved. Uh, there are bits that kind of expand or are a little bit different between the different kingdoms, but by and large, the green bits that are the conserved regions predominate. And that goes into uh, what was done originally, often when people were, before the advent of, of next generation sequencing, which is what we're doing now, where we can sequence entire genomes for reasonably low cost, uh, when people wanted to map which species they were looking at using molecular biology, they would often sequence just the ribosomal RNA because you would have this high conservation between species, meaning they all looked somewhat the same, but the individual sequences in these would vary. And so you could say, well, this bacteria is more related to that bacteria because its ribosomal RNA is more similar in the actual primary sequence to this species or that, or more divergent from that species, et cetera. Okay, so uh, that finishes up a little bit with talking about structure of RNA. I want to take, talk a little bit about, I want to talk a little bit about nucleases. Nucleases are the bane of our existence in the lab. They make us life very difficult. Uh, so especially in my lab, we work with RNA, and RNA is very susceptible to being degraded by, well, sorry, I just, uh, I just capitalized this N. Should be capital R, capital N, aces, just for being accurate. Um, so these are enzymes that break down nucleic acids, okay? You have deoxyribonucleases that break down DNA. We abbreviate them DNases. You have ribonucleases, which break down RNA. We call them RNases. RNases, if you're in an RNA lab, are a problem. If you see us wearing gloves in the lab, it's not because we're worried about what we're working with hurting us. It's more to do with our hands, which are covered with things like RNases because we want to not get infected by things like RNA viruses. Uh, these RNases on our hands, which get into our experiment, kill our experiment. So uh, we often have to be very careful in the, in the lab to keep RNases away from the stuff we're working with. But for your, uh, that's, that's more lab talk. Uh, for you, you have these DNases, these RNases, and they're break, broken down into kind of subgroups also. We have exonucleases. These uh, enzymes will degrade RNA or DNA from the ends. We often, um, so if this is your RNA, we often draw exonucleases as Pac-Mans, right? They kind of, bop, 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 bop. they kind of chug along the RNA and, and degrade it that way, just like, and, uh, and then you have endonucleases. Endonucleases are enzymes, we don't draw them as Pac-Man, but they're, they're an enzyme that's going to cleave the DNA or the RNA internally, okay? The most famous type of uh, endonucleases, and you guys probably come across this already in lab courses, uh, are restriction endonucleases. Uh, these are enzymes that recognize a very specific sequence and make a double-stranded cut uh, at that sequence. 
Uh, here are some examples of restriction enzyme sequences that are cut. You do not need to memorize the sequences. We should understand the concept, though. So uh, different restriction enzymes will create different types of cuts, uh, meaning a blunt end or a, what we call a sticky end. I'll talk about that. And different restriction enzymes will have different lengths of nucleotide sequences that they require to be able to make that cut. So what I mean by that is if you look at this HAE1, HAE3 enzyme down here, its recognition sequence is GGCC. And it's important to bear in mind that restriction endonucleases recognize palindromic sequences, meaning they read the same backwards and forwards when you look at the other strand. So it goes GGCC, and then on the other strand it goes GGCC. On both strands, 5 prime to 3 prime, it's GGCC, but because the strands are inverse and complementary to one another, it's like, you read it like radar, like, or words like radar, or, you know, reads the same backwards and forwards, right? And you can see that for all of these here, G-G-A-T-C-C, and then on the other strand, G-G-A-T-C-C. Uh, so HAE3 is what we call a four-cutter. Its restriction enzyme um, recognition site is four nucleotides long. So one important thing to bear in mind is if I'm going to cut my DNA of interest with HAE3, and I think it's got a... HAE3 restriction enzyme site in it, well, it may have more than one HAE3 restriction enzyme site in it, right? Uh, what is the odds that I'm going to, in a random sequence of DNA, come across this sequence? Well, at each nucleotide, you've got a, what's the, what's the likelihood at a particular position? I have a G, it's one in four, right? And so the likelihood that I have this sequence, G, G, C, C, is just one in four times one in four times 1 and 4, times 1 and 4. So 4, 16, 64, 256. So it's 1 and 256. So on average, every 256 nucleotides you chug along, you're going to find that sequence. And so if you take some DNA and add that restriction enzyme to it, you're going to get highly cut DNA with an average length of about that. Some are going to be longer, some are going to be shorter by random chance, but your DNA is going to be cut up into very tiny bits, right? Um, tiny bits in molecular biology terms. As you have a chromosome that's megabases long, and now you've got little bits of double-stranded DNA that are 256 nucleotides long, or base pairs long. On the other hand, a six-cutter, right, like BAMH1, the likelihood that it's going to find its restriction site is 4 to the 6, right? This was 4 to the 4. 4 to the 4 is 256. 4 to the 6 is 4,000 4, something? Is that on the calculator? 4 to the 6? What's that? 4,096, right. 1 in 4,096. So, uh, is that right? What's that? Uh, so this would be a sequence that's not palindromic. Uh, G, C, C, A, C, T. Reading the other way, it's A, G, T, G, G, C. So reading it this way is not the same as reading it this way. You see? So 
what it means is that the first three nucleotides, G, C, C, you have to then write the inverse. Uh, um, no, sorry, it goes both ways. So hang on, no. G, C, C, and then this will have to go G, C, C going this way, right? And then you just fill it in. So it goes G, G, C, and then G, G, C, right? GCC, GGC, GCC, GGC. I mean, if you read it both ways and it's the same sequence, you're good. That's a potential sequence for restrictions on site. Yeah? Right. Right. Okay, yeah, so that's a good point. So this would be the likelihood of finding this restriction on site of a six cutter over random DNA. But if your restriction enzyme site, like uh, BAMH1, is a little bit GC rich, right? It's got more Gs and Cs than As and Ts, and you're in an organism that is AT rich because it grows at low temperature, well then it's gonna be harder to find that sequence. You know? So there are some, there's a bit of things to think about with respect to that, but this is hypothetically speaking. And that does not mean once every 4,096 nucleotides there's going to be a site. It's the likelihood that you're going to find a site. You might find two right next to one another. You might go 20 kilobases and not find one next to one another. What you do is when you take your DNA and you cut it with a restriction enzyme that's a six cutter, you're going to get a smear. A smear of DNA from very small to very large. And the average size is going to be about that, presuming an equal abundance of A's and T's and G's and C's and presuming the sequence is random. And what I talked about before, so you can see here these little arrows. So when BAMH1 cuts, it cuts here, and it cuts here. So the cuts are offset, and so you get up, this is uh, ECHOR1, it's similar to BAMH1. Uh, is it on the slide? Here it is. So it cuts here and here. So when that cut happens, you get, uh, so one cut was here and the other cut was here, and so when they come apart, there's this region of, of um, complementarity or overlap between the two pieces. And those two pieces, when you're trying to ligate that back together, they're going to find one another and help anneal those two sides back together. It's not very long. It's not, there's not a lot of complementarity there. It's only four base pairs, right? So the forces holding those two pieces together are very transient and very weak. But it helps. It helps a bit. And so the likelihood if you're trying to ligate these two pieces back together, then that's what we call the sticky end. That will be more effective for religation than this example here, PBU2, which cuts, you see how the arrows here are basically right across from one another? That's going to create what's called a blunt end. And that blunt end is going to be harder to religate than a sticky end, where the ends actually try to anneal back with one another a little bit. And GC sticky ends are going to be better at reannealing and, and religating than, than AT sticky ends. Sometimes, I mean, if you have the option of using a sticky end cutter or a blunt end cutter in the lab, you always take the sticky end cutter. But sometimes you don't have a choice. You want to use this restriction site for your cloning, and the restriction enzyme that does that cut is a blunt end cutter. So now you're, you're screwed. You have to do it. Oh, yeah. So uh, why do we have restriction endonucleases? These are typically enzymes that we purify from various bacteria. 
this is some version of a bacterial, uh, I guess you could call it a immune system. They're trying to protect themselves from, from phages. We talked about phages a little bit class, a little bit last class. A phage is a virus that injects its DNA into the cell, uh, and then it tries to lyse that cell, right? What happens is, uh, in addition to the restriction enzyme that the bacterial cell has, the cell will also, bacterial cell, this also happens in eukaryotic cells. This will be important later this lecture. Um, eukaryotic cells and bacterial cells will methylate their DNA. Often at cysteines, in this case in adenosines, basically an enzyme will come along and put methyl groups uh, into the DNA, sometimes at the base, sometimes uh, on the sugar. I'm trying to think exactly where. The point is that the DNA has been methylated and when that DNA becomes methylated, it becomes resistant to the restriction enzyme. The restriction enzyme won't cut it. Okay? So what happens is the DNA of the host organism has sites in it that are uh, recognition sites for the restriction endonuclease, but the restriction endonuclease doesn't cut it because the DNA there is methylated at that site. However, a phage comes along and tries to infect that cell and lyse it, it injects its DNA into the cell, and its DNA has the restriction enzyme site, but it's not methylated because the phage doesn't have the methylation enzyme. And so it injects the DNA into the cell. The restriction enzyme will then cut that phage DNA into little pieces, and the phage will not produce an um, effective infection. Uh, so basically, it's basically this, this combination of this restriction and modification system, this methylation of DNA, and this restriction enzyme that helps protect the host bacterial DNA from, from degradation. Now, when we're in the lab and we want to use DNA uh, from E. coli for experiments and we want to cut it with uh, restriction enzymes, what we do is we work with strains of DNA where we've uh, removed the methylase. We've mutated the methylase. So the DNA in that E. coli strain is not methylated. Well, that makes that strain susceptible to viral infection more so than a wild type strain, but we don't infect it with viruses. We care for them, we talk gently to them, we uh, grow them nicely on plates where they're very happy, and so they uh, grow without having to be infected, but the DNA they produce is now susceptible to restriction enzymes, and that's often what we take advantage of in the lab. Any questions on that? Um, important to bear in mind that in eukaryotes, the DNA in the cell is not naked. It is packaged up into a DNA protein complex we call chromatin. Why do we do this? Well, the DNA in a cell, a standard cell, is ridiculously large. They say it could go, I can't remember how many times around the world. It's very long if you stretched it end to end. And somehow this very, very long piece of DNA needs to be packaged into a cell nucleus. It's not very wide, it's vanishingly small in its width, but it's very long. But there's got to be strategies to fit this into a cell nucleus. And so what happens is the uh, DNA is wrapped around these proteins called histones. Okay? Um, the, the group of histones together that the DNA is wrapped around is called a nucleosome. So a nu this is a nucleosome. It's made up of Histone proteins, uh, there are four in the core nucleosome, H2A, H2B, H3, and H4. 
and there are two of each of them. So you get this kind of double donut. They line up like this, and then the DNA is wrapped around that like this. And that helps kind of condense the DNA into a smaller space. Uh, obviously, the DNA is very negatively charged, as we've talked about. So if the DNA is going to have high affinity for the histones, the histones have to be very positively charged. So histones are very positively charged proteins. And you're going to find that, in general, DNA and RNA binding proteins have at least a section of that protein that has a lot of positive charge in it, such that it can now have high affinity for the nucleic acid. And so that's kind of what this looked like. I remember where the structure came out in nature. It was really exciting. We have actually a crystal structure of what this looks like. And so uh, the idea is that you have this kind of, this nucleosomes form this beads on a string, which is basically you've got this bead of DNA uh, wrapped around a nucleosome, and then there's this spacer between this nucleosome and the adjacent nucleosome. And so if you were to look at it under the microscope, it might look something like, like this, this kinds of beads on a string. So here's the DNA. It gets wrapped up into nucleosomes. Those nucleosomes condense into what we call the 30 nanometer fiber, this kind of arrangement, this helical arrangement of nucleosomes. You zoom out subsequently, and you see this kind of stretched out form of chromatin or chromosomes. And then the chromosome gets, this is a big region of study right now. People are really excited about how chromosomes are arranged in three-dimensional space. Uh, there's hypotheses stating that certain genes are going to be activated or inactivated based on, based on the large-scale architecture of how a chromosome is packaged in three-dimensional space. And then if you zoom up further, further, you get this kind of view of a chromosome that we're kind of used to seeing. Okay, so we're talking a little bit about DNA replication now. Okay, so I talked uh, last lecture about this concept that the, the DNA is kind of the hard drive of your cell, right? It's the, base, it's the basis of the storage of genetic information. All the DNA, with some exceptions, but generally the DNA of each of your cells is identical, right? You've got skin cells and liver cells and heart cells and neurons. And they all have the same DNA, but obviously they're different cells. That's because they're running, quote, unquote, different programs, right? So even though they have the same hard drive, they're running different systems. Uh, the genetic information, this DNA has to be replicated or duplicated whenever a parent cell gives rise to two daughter cells. This requires the synthesis of new DNA from the parental DNA, or we all call that, also call that the template DNA, that the parent's DNA templates, the parental DNA templates the synthesis of the, of the new DNA. Uh, and there was an extensive amount of work that was done in E. coli to figure out how DNA replication actually happens. It was worked out in prokaryotes, but the general scheme is identical in, in eukaryotes. So it was originally hypothesized that there'd be three ways that you could replicate DNA. Here's your parent cell. Conservative replication would mean that you um, keep the DNA of the parent intact, both strands, and you make two new strands, and they would be, uh, so basically the, the two new strands would be both completely new, and the two strands of the parent would have, would, would stay together. So we call that conservative replication. Semi-conservative replication is where you, the, strand, the parental strands stay intact, but in the two daughter cells, each daughter cell gets one cell, one strand from the parent and one new strand, 
and the other daughter cell gets the other strand from the parental cell and one new strand. Okay, so we call that semi-conservative. That's the one that's right. Uh, and then there's dispersive, where it would just be all messed up. Basically, this parental DNA would have bits that are in both strands in both daughter cells. It would just be kind of a mumble jumble. So how would we tell which one's correct? Very clever experiment. So we talked a little bit about centrifugation. DNA molecules are very large, so they um, lend themselves well to centrifugation. So basically what we do is we uh, make a, a gradient of a salt, a heavy salt called like cesium chloride. So we can make a gradient inside the tube such that the concentration of cesium chloride at the top is different than the concentration of cesium chloride at the bottom. So the top of the tube is, very, is not very dense, and the bottom of the tube is denser. And then if you put various molecules into this, uh, on the top of this tube, and you spin it, it spins around like this, and the tubes kind of swing up like this. And so basically, these are basically buckets, right? Uh, if you imagine there's two tubes on the ends of my arms, and they just hang down, and then you start spinning, and they start doing this, right? Like that. Kind of like a figure skater a bit. And so uh, the buckets go up, and that which is very dense will move further into the gradient than that which is uh, light, lighter, okay? And so if you've got heavy DNA or light DNA, the, those DNA molecules will move into the gradient once the spin is finished to positions where their density equals that of the cesium chloride in the gradient in that place. So the clever thing that they did, okay, was that they grew uh, E. coli on heavy isotopes. These are not radioactive isotopes, just heavier isotopes, right? So this is N15 nitrogen, which is heavier than the equivalent lighter isotope. So they grow E. coli for many generations in heavy nitrogen, okay? Since DNA has lots of nitrogen in it, right? All the bases are made up of, uh, well, the, the bases in part are made up by a lot of nitrogen. Since the uh, DNA uh, since the DNA's got a lot of nitrogen in it, if you grow E. coli on heavy DNA for many generations, you're going to get heavy DNA, okay? So that's going to sediment in the gradient uh, heavier or further down than it would have sedimented if, so let's say that this might be the DNA that is grown in heavy nitrogen, and this might be the DNA up here that was grown in light nitrogen, normal nitrogen, okay? So what they did was they grew... Uh, e. coli on heavy nitrogen for many generations, right? And after a certain number of generations, they know how long it takes E. coli to, to double, right? The typical doubling time of E. coli is about 30 minutes, okay? So they grow the, uh, the E. coli in heavy nitrogen long enough that all the DNA becomes heavy, quote-unquote heavy, and then for one or two generations, they switch that E. coli to growing in light nitrogen, okay, the normal isotope. And so what happens is the new DNA that's going to be synthesized during that shift to the light nitrogen is going to be light DNA. The old parental DNA is going to be heavy, and the new DNA that's synthesized is going to be light. And then you take the DNA out of the cell after one or two generations, and you put it over the gradient, and you see what you see, right? Well, this is what they saw. They grow the cells in the original heavy DNA, and they get a only heavy DNA. And then what they do is they let the cells grow for one generation in the light uh, nitrogen, and they get only hybrid DNA, 
So DNA of an intermediate. It's not the molecular weight or not the density of heavy DNA, and it's not the density of light DNA. It's in the middle. And the reason for that is because we know now that DNA replication is semi-conservative. The new DNA that was made has one heavy strand and one light strand. So the density of this piece of DNA, it's going to be lighter than this one, but it's not going to be as light as if it was all made up of only light DNA. Okay? What would it look like if it was conservative replication, if it was something that looked like if it was this? Well, you would have kept the heavy DNA and you would have made only new light DNA, right? So it wouldn't have looked like this. You would have kept one heavy piece down in the bottom, and the new one that you would have made would be up in the top, right? So the fact that it's hybrid suggests that it happens either this way, okay? It could be this way, or it could be this way. This would also give a hybrid pattern, right? Because this, in, in this situation, so in this situation, it's half heavy and half light. In this situation, it's also half heavy and half light, but it's all jumbled up. So how do you separate between this and this? You let it go a second generation, and this is what it will look like after two generations. You're still going to have uh, the two heavy, remember the parent strands stay together. So one of these two parent strands is going to template a new light strand, and you're going to get a new hybrid strand. The light strand here is going to template a new strand, and it's going to be pure light, right? It's, there's going to be no heavy in this one. And so when you run this over your gradient, you're going to get, again, a hybrid piece. That's this piece and this piece, and a light one, which is this piece and this piece. Whereas if it had been, again, this dispersive replication, you would have gotten a new, different hybrid band, right? You would have gotten, you know, this is all jumbled up, and then you template a new round of synthesis, you would also get more jumbled up. It would be lighter because there, the proportion of light in here would be greater because you grew a second generation on the light media, but it would still all be hybrid. There would not be two bands. It would still be just one hybrid band. Okay? So that's how they figured out that DNA replication is semi-conservative. In theory, yeah, if you centrifuge the high salt, you would denature the DNA, but I guess the salt they used was not sufficiently high to denature it. It depends also on which salt. I don't know, I'm not sure how cesium chloride behaves around DNA. Some salts are going to be more chaotropic than others. We good? Okay. So. So here's a circular E. coli chromosome, right? Our chromosomes, eukaryotic chromosomes are linear, but bacterial chromosomes are circles. And the question is, does DNA replication just kind of start wherever? Or does it start always in the same place? And the answer is always in the same place. There's actually a DNA sequence on the chromosome that's called the origin of replication, and that's what the DNA polymerase is looking for when it's starting to initiate DNA synthesis. So here's the circular chromosome, and you can actually see this under the microscope, right? So this is a piece of circular DNA chromosome that is uh, replicating, and you can see two replication forks. There's one here, and there's one here. This is where the one piece of DNA is being synthesized into two pieces, and it's bidirectional, right? This replication fork goes around this way, da -da 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 -da, and this one goes around this way. So the, we call this the replication bubble. 
and it proceeds along the replication forks, and if you were to draw it out, it would look something like this. Okay? And eventually you get two daughter duplexes. Um, again, we talked about how it begins at um, a discrete point on the E. coli chromosome. Uh, the way that we can see this is basically we can uh, grow cells in tritiated thymidine, so the uh, uh, DNA is, is uh, radioactive, and you can spread these across on slides, and if you've got a sufficiently high resolution, you actually see where the replication forks are coming along, and they noted that it was always only happening once, and they were able to estimate exactly in general where that occurs, and it's always in the same spot. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that um, replication reaction now. Okay? So how is it that a DNA gets, uh, DNA templates new DNA synthesis? So the enzymes that do this are called DNA polymerases. And we're going to talk about the situation in E. coli. Uh, in E. coli, you've got uh, at least, well, it's thought to be three DNA polymerases, DNA polymerase one, two, and three, and they all have slightly different jobs. Uh, they were numbered in the order in which they were discovered. So we think that the DNA polymerase that actually is doing the lion's share of standard DNA replication is actually DNA, DNA polymerase 3. Unfortunately, DNA polymerase 3 wasn't discovered first. DNA polymerase 1 was discovered first. So, uh, But they all catalyze uh, similar reactions, and we'll talk a little bit about the different jobs they do uh, in the next few slides. But this is basically the enzymatic reaction they perform. You've got a uh, deoxy some nucleotide monophosphate of n length. So this is a DNA sequence of length n. Could be 50, could be 4 million. And the DNA polymerase takes a uh, DNTP and it co uh, converts that to this chain, you now add one to it, plus the pyrophosphate. Why do you do this to me? Why do you do this to me? Sorry, should look like that. So the nucleotide chain plus one, it puts one on, and it gives off, so this was a triphosphate previously, it gives off the beta and the gamma phosphate, right? We call this this, when we give off two phosphates like this, we call that pyrophosphate, okay? And if you recall, it's that alpha phosphate that was on the NTP that gets incorporated into the phosphodiester backbone. Yeah. It takes them both off together. Yeah. But that bond between the gamma and the beta is subsequently hydrolyzed off as it's off. This, this will get hydrolyzed subsequently. And that makes the reaction really irreversible, right? So this is uh, something I kind of talked about a little bit last class. We add nucleotides onto the three prime hydroxyl of the daughter strand, okay? So that means DNA synthesis occurs in the five prime to three prime direction. It's always in the five prime to three prime direction. You're always adding free nucleotides onto the free three prime end. So uh, here's the template strand. It's important to kind of uh, get your nomenclature right. When we're talking about the template strand, that is the parent strand. That's the strand that's templating the synthesis of the new strand. So 
So here's the template strand. This is the growing strand. This is the new piece of, of nucleic acid that's being synthesized. And you've got this incoming uh, nucleotide triphosphate. In this case, it's an A. The DNA polymerase makes sure that the new nucleotide coming in base pairs nicely with the corresponding nucleotide on the template strand. And then you have these magnesium ions that are coordinated by the aspartic acid residues on the DNA polymerase. I'm not going to go into the chemistry so much of the reactions. You don't need to know that, but you should understand a couple things. Number one, you always have aspartic acid residues in the active site of polymerases. And those aspartic acid residues always coordinate magnesium ions. In fact, for pretty much every that I'm aware of, every chemical reaction that occurs where you're messing with nucleotide triphosphates and turning them into nucleotide diphosphates or monophosphates, you've always got these magnesium ions, which are helping with the chemistry of that reaction. Magnesium ions are critical to kind of DNA, RNA chemistry reactions. And so, again, the specific chemistry of the reaction, we're not really going to go into much beyond that. But here we've got this free 3' hydroxyl. It's going to make this new phosphodiester linkage to this alpha phosphate. The beta and the gamma come off. That's what we talked about before. And now we've got this new phosphodiester linkage between the uh, 3' hydroxyl of this C and the 5' of this A. And now this is the new 3' hydroxyl. And the next nucleotide is going to come in. It'll be a G because the next nucleotide is C. Uh, you're going to basically repeat this reaction with the next nucleotide coming in. Yeah. The purpose of the magnesium is uh, really just to facilitate the chemistry of this kind of breaking and forming of bonds around these phosphates. Um, and I don't really know if I need to want to get into it greater than that. There are people whose entire careers are about studying this chemistry, but I'm not one of them. So, um, but it, we, you know, in the lab, we are kind of always aware of the importance of magnesium when we're doing reactions that involve RNA and DNA. It has to do with coordination of water molecules, and I mean, I'm not going to get into that. Okay, so this is kind of a zoomed-out view of that same idea. You've got a template strand, right? That's the blue strand. You've got a primer strand, or the strand that's being synthesized. Here's your incoming uh, deoxynucleotide triphosphate. In this case, it's an A, because on the template strand, you've got this T, right? Uh, they're talking about the insertion site. That's where the new incoming NTP is going to be added. The post-insertion site is the site one nucleotide ago. That's the one that you inserted one nucleotide in the past. So you add the nucleotide to the growing strand, and there's a translocation event whereby the polymerase moves, it translocates. Translocate is just a fancy word for move. The polymerase moves or translocates one nucleotide along the DNA such that now the empty insertion site is ready to receive the next uh, NTP. In this case, it'll be a CTP. Okay. This is kind of the structure of what that looks like. People always say that the polymerases look like a hand. Right? You've got a palm, you've got a thumb, which kind of grasps on to the DNA that's being synthesized, and the fingers. Uh, and that's kind of just another cartoon of what it looks like. Good question. So the question is, um, 
does the polymerase grab random, polymer, random nucleotides until it puts in the right one? Well, um, so this is the way the active site of the enzyme looks, right? When a GC or an AT base pair form nicely in the active site, well, then the enzyme accommodates that nicely. But when it puts in the wrong one, the active site of the enzyme doesn't accommodate it well. You can see this is a GT base pair, which isn't supposed to happen. And now this T is sticking into the actual. To be able to bind to the G, it's not binding correctly. So it's a kind of a combination of the wrong nucleotide won't fit. There's that element. There's also the element that you know, the right base pair, the GC base pair, there's going to be a higher affinity of that than for the wrong one. Do you know what I mean? That doesn't mean it doesn't make mistakes. It does make mistakes. So it often does put in the wrong one. We'll talk about that in a second. And as I talked about already, the major DNA polymerase in E. coli is DNA pol 3. Okay, that's the one that does, when we think of DNA polymerase chugging along the DNA and making new, new DNA, it's DNA pol 3 that's doing that. So this is what I just talked about. Sometimes it puts in the wrong nucleotide, right? So here's a T here in the template strand. It should have put in an A, but instead it put in a C, okay? That will happen at a certain rate, right? All, no enzymes are perfect. The rate is actually very low. Maybe one in, I'm gonna make up a number. Say, let's pretend it's one in 10,000, right? Well, that's a very low rate. That means that the enzyme's really good. If you were copying numbers out of the phone book, back when we had phone books, but if you were copying out, if you were transcribing something, you would probably make a mistake more often than one in 10,000. But when you've got a three megabase or a 30 megabase genome, if you're making a mistake every 10,000 bases, well then just one cell division, you're gonna have a lot of mutations. That's a problem. So the cell has, the cell has ways to fix errors this is one way. The one way that it fixes the error very quickly is that it senses immediately when, uh, when, so as I kind of alluded to on this slide, when it puts in the wrong base, well, it's not gonna fit in the active site very well, right? The active site is gonna be distorted. And the polymerase can sense that. It folds, the, it, it, it assumes a different fold, and as a result, what happens is it moves the insertion site into a different site onto the enzyme, which has a three prime to five prime exonuclease activity. Okay? We talked about exonucleases, it's basically this Pac-Man, right? Um, so the polymerization occurs five prime to three prime, going one direction, but this is now going backwards, right? Three prime to five prime, and it basically, in using this exonuclease activity, takes off the nucleotide it just put in, right? So it actually, synthesizes the wrong nucleotide, it makes that new phosphodiester backbone bond, and then it hydrolyzes that same bond it just made, and the wrong nucleotide floats away. It then puts that uh, uh, empty site that used to have that, a, that C, that wrong C, it puts it back into the normal insertion site, and now the polymerase has a new chance to put in the right nucleotide, okay? It didn't learn from its mistake. It doesn't necessarily know now better what nucleotide to put in. It uses the same chemistry and reaction it did before to say, well, you know, uh, 
the right nucleotide to put in here. I can see that the template strand has got a T. I'm going to put in an A. Okay? It just redoes the same reaction that it did the first time, only now the likelihood is, because the error rate is generally very low, the likelihood that it's going to put the right one in now is, is high. Make sense? Yeah. This, uh, so it's not an endonuclease. It's only exonuclease in this case. It's uh, exonuclease activity. And all polymerases have this activity. So DNA Pol1, Pol2, and Pol3 have the ability to go backwards and fix errors they've made. Contrary to the common 3 prime to 5 prime, contrary to this common 3 prime to 5 prime exonuclease activity that all polymerases have, there is a 5 prime to 3 prime exonuclease activity that only Paul 1 has. So we talked about how going 3 prime to 5 prime was basically backing up a space, right? You put in the wrong nucleotide and now you back up one. But this is exonuclease activity in the same direction as the polymerization, right? So why would you do that? Why would you hydrolyze nucleotides that are in front of you? Well, that's going to be very important with respect to how um, DNA repair works and DNA replication works in the next few slides. Um, what I want to just draw your attention to is this idea that, you know, here's DNA polymerase, Paul 1. It's chugging along the DNA, and it's synthesizing the new strand. And in front of it is DNA that's kind of in its way, right? This, there's, a, there's basically a nick in the DNA here. And then there's this piece of nucleic acid that's in front of it. And what will happen is DNA polymerase 1 is going to chug along. And as it's adding nucleotides to this piece, it's going to degrade this piece in front of it. So this is this 5 prime to 3 prime exonuclease. It's actually degrading nucleotides in front of it as it is adding nucleotides behind it. Okay. What happens is, so basically that's what's shown here. The polymerase chugs along, and it puts in nucleotides here and removes nucleotides there. And eventually, that piece, the, the, the piece that was in front of it that's shown here in purple, is removed. And this nick here is pushed along the DNA. Basically, this little hole that was here is now further along. It's now here. So we call this nick translation. There's a nick in the DNA, and we basically, as we remove the nucleotide in front of us and put in the nucleotide behind us, we move the space of that nick along the DNA. Okay? So now it's here. Okay? And the important thing is that, and this is gets into kind of how DNA polymerases work, this piece here can be DNA or it can be RNA. Question of why that's important is going to, I'm going to talk about right now. So if this was RNA, right? If you had this kind of DNA RNA hybrid, and you don't want RNA in DNA, that's bad, right? In theory, you know, DNA should be DNA, right? What are we doing here? So if you've got this piece of RNA in here, then one of the ways you could remove that RNA but keep the sequence is you move polymerase one along the template strand, you remove the RNA that's in front of it, and replace it with DNA behind it. And now, until you've removed all this RNA, and now you can just seal that nick, and you've got happy 
pure DNA again. Yeah. There's another enzyme that has to come along and seal it, which we'll talk about. So DNA polymerase will not seal the NIC. It will just move the NIC. Another enzyme has to come along to seal the NIC. Okay, so this gets to a challenging issue, challenging problem, if we're going to talk about how DNA replication happens. If DNA synthesis is always 5 prime to 3 prime, but the strands are in opposite directions, and the replication fork only goes one way, right, a particular replication fork only goes one way. There's another replication fork going the other way, but we're going to zoom in on, on one replication fork, right? So the replication fork is going this way. You've got one strand that runs 5 prime to 3 prime, and another strand that runs 5 prime to 3 prime this way. Well, if DNA polymerase synthesis is always 5 prime to 3 prime, how can we do that? That's the problem, right? It's not a problem on this strand, right? If the, this strand, the template strand, runs 5 prime to 3 prime, so that means you're making a new strand, 5 prime to 3 prime, this way, and this would be the 3 prime hydroxyl, this is the strand, this is the place where you're putting on the new nucleotides. Well, the direction that you're adding the nucleotides on is the same direction as the replication fork. So that strand is not a problem. That's, that's easy. This strand's a problem, right? The DNA runs 5 prime to 3 prime. That means if we're going to synthesize DNA, the DNA is going to go this way, right? Well, the polymerase wants to go this way, and the replication fork is supposed to go that way. How is that going to happen? Well, what happens is, this was noticed by this fellow Okazaki, one of the few instances I know of in molecular biology where someone's name got attached to something and it stuck. Uh, this fellow Okazaki noticed that uh, on the, what we call the lagging strand, that is the strand that runs opposite to the direction of the replication fork, the DNA is made in a discontinuous way, right? This piece is made as one long piece that just translates along the same way that the replication fork goes. This strand, it's made in little pieces. Chup, chup. And what happens then is these little pieces get linked together. So because you're only making these in little pieces at a time, well then the polymerase at the replication fork can still go along this way. It just synthesizes the new DNA on the lagging strand at the replication fork. It doesn't have to follow along this way. Okay. So on the lagging strand, what we call the lagging strand, the DNA synthesis is discontinuous. It's made in small fragments called Okazaki fragments. So here's kind of an idea of how that works. So this is the DNA polymerase 3 holoenzyme. Okay. It's basically got two catalytic centers. That's this yellow core. It's got this beta clamp. This beta clamp is basically what attaches the core enzyme to the place of DNA synthesis, right? It's this, we're gonna see, hopefully the link works, this awesome movie of how this works. It's pretty neat, actually. Or at least it's a hypothesized movie of how it works. So here's the direction of the replication fork. It's going this way. This is the leading strand, and so basically, again, the polymerase just has to synthesize the new DNA in the same direction as the DNA polymerase is going. This is the discontinuous synthesis on the lagging strand, okay? So this is the previous Okazaki fragment. This is the one that it's just finishing, okay? And I'll call your attention to uh, this little green piece in a little while. 
So basically, this is the Okazaki fragment that was just finished. It's getting ready to synthesize a new Okazaki fragment. What happens is this enzyme called primase here jumps on. It binds to the lagging strand, and it synthesizes not a piece of DNA, but a piece of RNA called the RNA primer. What we, know, what we now know is that you can't synthesize DNA from nothing. DNA, you can't, you always have to, another way of saying that is when you're making DNA, you always have to add your nucleotide onto a 3' hydroxyl that's behind it. Okay? You can't start from zero when you're making DNA. You can do that with RNA, but you can't do that with DNA. Okay? So what happens is when it's making a new Okazaki fragment, there's a little piece of RNA that's made by this primase, and then the 3' hydroxyl of that RNA serves as the 3' hydroxyl that you put the first DNA nucleotide on. Okay, so we've got this primase that comes in, and we've got a new RNA primer here in the active site. Okay? A new beta clamp is loaded on to move the core of the polymerase onto this. So this is the beta clamp that's been left behind from the previous piece. The beta clamp uh, locks the core of the polymerase onto the new RNA primer. And now that gets loaded into the DNA polymerase section, and it uses the 3' hydroxyl of that little RNA piece to synthesize this Okazaki fragment until it gets long enough that it stops, and then primase will come along and make a new Okazaki fragment starting here. And this is the last Okazaki fragment, right? You've got this here, where you've got this RNA primer here, and the DNA piece that's in the rearview mirror. Okay? So we're gonna, I'm going to show that in a few more slides in, in slightly different ways. This is just what I was talking about. We now know that DNA synthesis can't start from nothing. You always have to be adding nucleotides onto a free 3' hydroxyl. So the first nucleic acid synthesized is a short piece of RNA by an enzyme called primase. We can start RNA from nothing, and then we, that provides us a 3' hydroxyl that Paul 3 can add onto. Okay? And this is what happens. So this is the last Okazaki fragment, the previous one, uh, the one that's in the rearview mirror. And this is the one that, let's say, there's an RNA primer here, and DNA polymerase just finished making this Okazaki fragment. Well, the DNA polymerase is going to stop when the new fragment runs into the RNA piece of the previous fragment. Okay? And this is where DNA polymerase 1, which has this 5' to 3' exonuclease activity, will come along, use the 3' hydroxyl of the most recent Okazaki fragment, and translate this NIC. As it translates the NIC, it's removing that RNA that's in front of it. That's what we showed on the, a few slides back. It basically removes that RNA until it makes it only into DNA. And then this enzyme called DNA ligase uses an ATP to seal the NIC. Okay, so once the DNA has been filled in, the RNA primers are replaced with uh, DNA by the 3' to 5', by the 5' to 3' exonuclease activity of Paul one This is the reason I'm, I'm aware of. There may be, there probably are considerations like that, but I'm, I would be, I don't want to speculate and be wrong. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. The question is, why does RNA start from nothing and DNA not? Um, it's just the way it evolved. Um, 
there's a theory going around that you know RNA was kind of how it started, right? And uh, a lot of viruses are RNA viruses. They rely on RNA to kind of infect and that type of thing. And so there's a hypothesis that DNA came about as a defense against RNA. If viruses are all RNA-based, then it would be more stable and safer to store the long-term genetic information in a different form. And so it might be part of that kind of defense mechanism, you know what I mean? We're going to make DNA a little bit harder to make, I guess, than RNA, such that the cell can do it happily, but RNA viruses are going to have maybe a little bit of a harder time. I'm not sure. That's me speculating. But that's fun to do. Okay, so we talked about this sealing of the NIC, right? So that's done by an enzyme called RNA, uh, DNA ligase. Okay, once the newly synthesized DNA meets, where the newly synthesized DNA strand meets the adjacent one, so basically here, okay, you've got this NIC, you've got to seal it. There will be a gap or a NIC in the backbone. These NICs are sealed by DNA ligase, and now the synthesis of the daughter strand is done. So this is DNA ligase. It's got this free NH3 group. Uh, I'm not sure whether it's a lysine or whether it's a, the end terminus of the protein. I can look that up. If you remind me, I'll look it up. Uh, but anyways, it's got this free NH3 group. It gets covalently linked to, so ATP gets hydrolyzed and AMP gets linked covalently to the enzyme. The enzyme then takes that AMP and activates this phosphate, this 5' prime phosphate, by putting basically AMP on it. Okay, so now this phosphate on the 3' prime end of the NIC, sorry, the 5' prime end of the NIC, is basically linked to an AMP, and then that effectively gets hydrolyzed by DNA ligase, which seals the NIC and gives off the AMP again. So AMP, uh, you use an ATP, Basically, what I want you to take away from this is you use an ATP to seal NICs, and AMP actually acts like kind of a cofactor in this reaction. It's actually part of the chemical reaction. You actually put AMP on the substrate transiently and then take it off again to seal the NIC. Let's see if this works. Go there.
that as much as you want. Um, and then this is a bit of a more... Um, Let's suppose that you're writing a really important email to a colleague. Cells like these prokaryotic E. coli... So I'm not going to watch the movie, cause, but you're welcome to watch the movie um, on your own time. And it actually kind of... To three prime direction. Adding new nucleotides to the three prime end of the newly forming strand. Okay, so we'll talk a little bit about DNA repair now. Okay, so sometimes uh, we get changes in the DNA sequence. That's a mutation. Uh, most mutations are uh, detrimental to protein function. Uh, it's easy to break. Another way to think about that is it's easy to break things. It's easier to break things than to fix things or make new, better things. So usually when you get a mutation, it's bad. Okay. Some have no effect. We call those silent. Rarely, like when uh, uh, Logan got the mutation for claws uh, or other X-Men mutations, sometimes you get a mutation that improves the function of a species or a protein. Um, and that's thought to be the way that we evolve, right? So rarely there will be a mutation that makes things better. Uh, spontaneous mutations can occur during DNA replication or in normal cellular processes. Induced mutations are caused by mutagens. Uh, this harkens back to experiments that were done in the 60s and 70s when they were basically taking bacteria and yeast and exposing them to all sorts of environmental things like UV and cigarette smoke and these types of things. And we started figuring out that uh, people get cancer because they are often exposed to things that cause mutations, and that's led us to understand better how certain lifestyle choices will make for healthier people. Uh, and we're talking a little bit about the cell's ways to repair uh, damaged DNA now. Uh, Single-use mutations can be substitutions. That means we change one nucleotide for another. That creates a mismatch. Um, that's like what we talked about before when polymerase puts in the wrong nucleotide. If we change a purine for another purine or a pyrimidine for another pyrimidine, we call that a transition mutation. If we switch a purine for a pyrimidine or vice versa, that's called a transversion. Insertions is where we uh, don't switch a nucleotide. It's where we insert a nucleotide. And a deletion is where we remove a nucleotide. So who can give me an idea, based on what you may know already, on on the effect of an insertion or deletion mutation on the uh, encoded protein. Now, we haven't covered this yet. We haven't covered, really, the genetic code leading to how you make proteins. But if you've covered that already, you may want to think about that. And, and I'll ask you to remind me, when we start talking about uh, messenger RNAs getting translated into proteins, what that would, what, what, what an insertion mutation or a deletion mutation would do to the, to the function of the protein. Insertion mutation, your clue is that uh, substitution mutations can have little effect or a moderate effect, but insertion and deletion mutations inevitably have a catastrophic effect. They are very, very bad. Okay. So have a think about that if you've
That's right. So you're changing an A to a G or a G to an A. That would be a transition mutation. If you're changing a G to a C, that would be a purine for pyrimidine or vice versa. That would be a transversion. But A to G or U to C or, sorry, T to C would be a transition. So you should know which are your purines and which are your pyrimidines. Yeah? Certainly. I mean, um, substitutions can also lead to a dysfunctional protein. The question is why do insertions and deletions always create a dysfunctional protein? And substitutions may or may not make a dysfunctional protein. I'm sure you guys know, but maybe not everyone does. Does everyone know? You've covered open reading frames? Yes. Okay. Well, then the reason is that, well, who wants to, well, if someone tells me, then that's great that you figured it out, but you, people won't, you know? Here. It causes a frame shift, so most likely every amino acid will be changed in all the order. That's right. So if you uh, insert or delete a nucleotide, you're now out of frame. Okay? So what will happen is every amino acid after the site of the insertion or the deletion will be wrong. And uh, basically, now your protein is non-functional. So some classes of single nucleotide mutations, silent mutations, there's no change in amino acid. You guys understand that there's, sometimes there's more than one codon that codes for the same amino acid. For example, UUU and UUC both code for phenylalanine. If you change that C to a U, you've made a mutation, but there's no change in the protein, so that would be silent. Missense mutations would be a change in the coded amino acid, say phenylalanine to serine or something like that. Nonsense mutations, that's the term we use for a mutation where we change the amino acid to a stop codon. And for the reason we just talked about, insertion mutations and deletion mutations are considered to be nonsense mutations. Why? Why would that be? Well, when you evolve a gene, a protein that's, I don't know, 500 amino acids long, well, there's an evolutionary pressure to not have a stop codon in the middle of that. Otherwise, you're not going to have a functional protein. So there's an evolutionary pressure to not have stop codons in proteins until you get to the right, the correct stop codon, right? But once you're out of frame, what's the likelihood that you're going to hit a stop codon just randomly? Well, there's 64 codons and three stop codons, right? So it's about 1 in 20. And there's no evolutionary pressure to not have stop codons out of frame. Right? So ch chances are what happens is that once you get out of frame, pretty quickly, the ribosome is going to hit a stop codon. And it's just going to stop translating. And so for that reason, insertion mutations and deletion mutations functionally, effectively, are, are nonsense mutations. They're basically going to hit a stop codon out of frame, and you're going to not make your protein at all. At least three prime to where the insertion or deletion was. Okay, so I'm not sure how far I'll get into these repair pathways, but we'll talk about them a little bit. I'll see if I can get through a couple of them. I want to talk about mismatch repair. This is interesting and cool because we already covered one of the ways, one of the key elements of how this works earlier this lecture. So you can imagine that the polymerase is chugging along and by chance it puts in the wrong nucleotide and by further unlucky chance, it didn't fix it. It didn't go back and exonuclease it off. It just kept going because it was distracted and it was thinking about something else. So now you've got a mismatch in the DNA. Okay? How 
you know, on one strand you have an A, and on the other strand you're supposed to have a T, but instead you have A, and on the other strand you have G, right? So there's a mismatch there. How does the cell know which is the wrong one, right? It's got one strand with an A on it, and the other strand with a G on it. Well, one of those is right. Either the A is right, and it should be a T, or the G is right, and the other one should be a C, right? So the cell has to have a way of knowing which strand was the template strand, and which strand is the new strand. Well, I told you that when we're talking about restriction modification, the DNA of E. coli and other bacteria gets modified by methyl transferases, methylating enzymes. They put methyl groups on the DNA such that now that DNA will not be cut by uh, uh, the restriction enzymes that are protecting the, the E. coli from phages, right? Well, what that means is the parental strand will be methylated, but the newly synthesized strand, the strand that it just made, well, it takes a little while for it to be methylated. It's not methylated right away, right off of the polymerase. So what that happens is, as you're making the new DNA, you've got one strand that is methylated, and the new strand is not methylated. So we call that hemi it's hemimethylated DNA. Okay? After a few minutes, eventually, the newly synthesized strand becomes methylated, and now you've got methylated DNA. But the point is that right after synthesis, you can tell by looking at which strand's methylated, which is the new strand and which is the old strand. And that's what happens in mismatch repair. Here is a newly synthesized piece of DNA where the polymerase made a mistake, so there's a mismatched base pair. These proteins called MUDES and MUDEL in an ATP-dependent way bind to the site of the mismatch, and then they start pulling in the DNA from both sides. It starts pulling in the DNA here, and this starts pulling in the DNA here. It's looking for which strand has a methyl group on it. And once it knows which strand has the methyl group on it, it cleaves the unmethylated strand in that space. So it makes a cut here, okay, on the unmethylated strand. What's going to happen? Well, DNA Paul 1, right, is going to bind to that free prime, free three prime hydroxyl and re-replicate over that strand that has the nick in it. It's going to translate along the nick. And when it does that, hopefully it's going to put in the right piece this time. It's going to put in the right nucleotide. And so it's basically going to fix that. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Whoa, I had that. My bad, my bad. Oh, my. It wasn't Paul 1 that does this. An exonuclease comes in and degrades the nicked strand. And then that's filled in by Paul 3. Okay? So you basically end up having, you don't do this really this nick translation that you would do by Paul 1. Instead, you have an exonuclease that cleaves along the nicked strand until it gets past the site of the mismatch, and then basically you're going to have one strand that is single-stranded, the other strand there's going to be a hole here, that gap will be filled in by Paul 3, and then you, once it joins up to the other side, ligase can come in again and, and seal that net. The exonuclease, that's right. The exonuclease, so, um, okay, don't confuse, let's, let's, the NIC here is made by this complex, this MUDH, MUDES, MUDEL complex, okay, on the non-methylated strand, okay? And then a different exonuclease comes in and degrades from the NIC past the site of the mismatch, okay, which is not drawn, but that happens downstream of this. And then Paul 3 fills it in. 
it does, so it first recognizes the mismatch, but it's not at the site of the mismatch that it makes the nick. It looks along the strands until it finds one strand that's methylated and the other one that's not, and then it makes the nick there. When it binds here, it recognizes the mismatch because of the distortion of the helix here, right? When you put in the wrong, when you pair G with A, it's not going to make for a nice Watson Crick base helix. It's going to make a bulge. So it recognizes that and binds there. But at that point, it doesn't know which strand is the wrong one. So it doesn't nick here. It doesn't nick in that spot. It pulls in the DNA from either side until it finds one strand that's methylated and the other one that's not. And, that, and it cuts on the side that's not. Yeah, this would be, you would classify this as an endonuclease. This would be an endonucleotic cleavage by the mutes, mutel, mutH proteins, but then this bit is removed by an exonuclease. The, 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 the nick that's been made is the space where the exonuclease, the Pac-Man, comes in. And ch -ch 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 -ch. So it's pretty neat. Please, the one that's unmethylated. Yeah, so if, if, if both strands get methylated before it has a chance to do this, then it's, the mutation's permanent. Yeah. Don't be sorry. When the exonuclease comes in, it removes the wrong nucleotide along with all the other ones around it. It does not know which is the wrong one. It just sees the nick here and just starts exonuclease cutting, degrading. It just chugs along for a certain amount of space, and then Paul 3 comes in and fixes it. And when Paul 3 comes in and fixes it, that's when the mutation is fixed. Do you know what I mean? The nick is made by these guys, mute L, mute S, mute H. Last question, yeah. I don't know. Why, why is Paul 3 used? Because it, as my old advisor used to say, because it works. There's, there's, life has found a way to do something that works. And thus, it has been frozen in existence. Uh, can we do it? Uh, OK. All right, so we'll break now. <laughs>